it is befitting that I leave the game just like I came in, beating a big, bad monster who knocks out everybody and no one can whoop him. That's when that little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky came up and stopped Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill me. But he hit harder than George. His reach was longer than George. He was a better boxer than George. And I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sonny Liston. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaws been broke, been knocked, knocked down a couple of times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Man, dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night, I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. Welcome to the New Age Boxing Podcast. With me, Andy White, and with me today... Terry Chapendam, unfortunately, no Martin today. Yeah, unfortunately, Martin can't be with us today. So it's just the two of us. He is just the two of us. Um, Building castles in the sky, whatever the song is. <laughs> we start off with the uh, sad news that a legend of the sport that we both, uh, that we both love has passed on. Uh, one... Muhammad Ali. Devastating. Yeah. Um, hurt, hurt, but I guess I might be one of the minority that's like, you know, been mourning for 20 years. Um, the greatest boxer of all time, but I think in my lifetime, his greatest performance was actually lighting the flame at the 96 Olympics because that was the one thing I saw Ali do. Everything else is, you know, especially pre-YouTube was stuff your parents would tell you or stuff you saw in documentaries. But when yeah, you course, saw him yeah. and you knew what hell he must be going through, but he summoned the courage to basically say, you know, nothing defeats me. And, you know, he he went on to light that flame. And I thought that was an impressive moment. But from that point on, you knew you were on borrowed time with Muhammad Ali. Um, You know, we could talk about this for, for two or three days. Yeah, it was a, it was a really... He was an impressive character, wasn't he? I mean, not in as much... I mean, if you, if you strip away all of the... Um, well, not strip away, but if you take aside the, the boxing element of it just for a, a second and you look at um, what he what he tried to achieve and, you know, arguably achieved in the civil rights movement in the United States, I mean, it's it's not something I want to get sort of bogged down with but I, I just find it's, it's it's indicative of his character is he's never say die spirit and in the face of adversity it, when he's lighting that flame and he's and he's struggling to do that but he still fights through it when he was 
uh, underrated and um, people were betting against him. The George Foreman fights and stuff like that. He, he fought through and uh, and the and the problems that he had to suffer in you know um, pre sort of civil rights America. So you imagine living in Jim Crow America. You're growing up in the 40s and the 50s. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali sees his mum being forced out of a restaurant because of the colour of her skin. He, you know, he grows up in this climate of, you know, essentially apartheid. It's essentially what you're looking at in the United States. It was apartheid. A very visceral hatred existed. And in this climate is this gifted kid who wasn't gifted academically but was clearly intelligent. You know, he finds a passion in boxing as a result of having a bike stolen, you know, being being a notoriously hard worker, works his way up to an Olympic gold medal representing a country that still didn't view him as an equal citizen. And then yeah. from then on, you know, you can see that sense of injustice fueling him, you know, that whole dichotomy of I'm I'm this nation's champion in the sport of boxing, yet I'm not really part of this country. They don't want me to be part of this country. And you can see that throughout his whole life. I think Muhammad Ali sort of embraces that notion of you've got to take what the world throws at you and channel it positively. And then once you do channel it positively, you then have the obligation to do something to make the situation better. And I think that's the bit I really respect about Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I, I I'd agree with everything that you sort of um, even just the whole concept that you sort of illustrate there is um, when he won his gold medal. There's a clip that I'll play at the end of the podcast. Uh, it's um, a Michael Parkinson interview, and he tells the story of when he won his gold medal, and he went home to a restaurant, um, and that didn't serve black people. And uh, <laughs> the the story that he tells is is it's it's horrible in in its essence, but the way that he talks about it in his characteristic um, and colourful, you know, his colourful the way that he captures it and his articulate way of describing it, it's just it's, it it just really captures everything. The, it turns it something that's horrible into something that's humorous and. That's often such a great way to attack problems and, and, you know, discrimination, let's say. Yeah, highlight to the world how absurd things are. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which is what he did. Isn't that when he threw he threw his gold medal away? Because they had to give him another <laughs> one, if you remember. <laughs> yeah, so, they, yeah, they gave him another gold medal because he <laughs> threw it away in disgust. Um, it, it's, it's, it's tragic. Um, because there's so many elements to Muhammad Ali. You know, there's there's the boxer. Well, there's the pre-1967 boxer. And I always say to people, outside of Roy Jones, there hasn't been a greater athlete in the sport in terms of being able to do what was seemingly impossible. You know, and that was Muhammad Ali up until 67. He lost his peak years, obviously, as a result of the Vietnam crisis. He comes back in the 70s. You know, he's a bit heavier. He's older. The body doesn't respond in the same way and carves out a whole new career as a different kind of boxer up until his retirement in 81. Can we quickly just um, elaborate on the Vietnam stuff? I mean, I, I try to, there's plenty of people that are going to be listening to this and know exactly that. But this is this is a period of time when America was in Vietnam and he um, he objected to the, to the fight on religious no, grounds. No, or? no, no, no. The, the story is. All men under a certain age were eligible drafted, to be drafted. Yeah. 
but you had to take a test. He failed the test. Basically, he, I was, uh, don't quote me on this, it was some kind of aptitude test or IQ right. test. And he failed. He didn't just fail. It wasn't a borderline fail. It was he properly failed because he wasn't academic. So he, so he, he wasn't meant to be drafted. So what they then did is, we need this guy. So they lowered the threshold. So he suddenly qualified. And his argument was, number one, I don't want to be part of this war. But number two, even, even in the event, by your own rules, I shouldn't be fighting. But you've just changed the rules just so you can get me in. Was this a political move to try and suck him in? Or? It was, well, if you go back to the Second World War and they had Joe Lewis. Right. And they had Joe Lewis and he'd do all these sort of videos. You know, I'm Joe Lewis, the champion of the world, you know, doing my thing for the troops. And so that's what they offered Muhammad Ali. Right, they said, okay. You don't have to fight in Vietnam, but we need you in a uniform saying stuff, you know, to swing the tide of opinion towards us because obviously in America no Being one really wants to boy essentially exactly so they offered him that they offered him all kinds of roles and what he said was I want no part of this how can I be part of a war fighting for a country that so, doesn't believe so he in was me? I mean I realise there are other, other factors in it now you've said that but that he was effectively a conscientious objector as well wasn't, yeah. he? wasn't he yeah so, and so because of that he then was imprisoned for three years four years was it um well, was he or was it three years he was banned for yes, from the boxing? Exactly. So, right. so so he wasn't eligible to box. He, he spent a minimal amount of time oh, in, right, in, okay. in jail. In jail. But he had no money. So he had to take on these speaking engagements. Um, and people were helping him out with money. He was, you know, that's I think even Joe Frazier helped him out with money as well. Wow. So the, the man, I mean, there's so many elements to what makes him great. Everything you look at regarding Ali, you just say, great you know his stance against vietnam and it was the right thing to say it was like you know we say we say that now with the war in iraq where we just say actually why are we there why yeah, are we course, you know yeah. it's nothing to do with us we're just making things worse it's easy to see in retrospect but at the time these were content uh, contentious issues weren't they and whether you would be on the right side of history or not was just completely up to just chance essentially so he he made a decision and i say in retrospect it's easy to see that it was it was the right decision, but at the time it took bravery and uh, and sort of courage to come and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. He was hated. If yeah. you if you remember how hated Ali was as a result of not doing that, because you know American society is built on this whole military idea, and you know you serve your country when your country comes calling. He was vilified. He was disliked. He was hated. And you know that's probably two or three years after he changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali which drew even more vitriol. You know, let's not forget, you know, the beating he gave Floyd Patterson for still calling him Clay. And then the beating he gave Ernie Terrell. Now, this is, are you talking about this? Is Floyd Patterson, is that the fight where whilst he's in the fight, he's screaming at him, what's my name? What's my name? Well, that was Ernie Terrell. Oh, okay. That's so Ernie, Ernie Terrell, 19, was it January 1967? Guessing. Look that on YouTube. That is a fantastic. Yeah, there's a point right at the end of the amazing. round and you see it and, and it's... it's the commentators are saying, oh my God, he's punishing this guy. It was only Terrell. Um, that, that's one of my favourite Ali fights because if you watch it, at any point he could have ended that fight, but he extends the fight <laughs> to let this guy know, you know, I'm a bad dude. Yeah. And, and so there are all these elements, you know, and that's the, that's the pre-Vietnam Ali, um, athletic, live, punches from the most unusual of angles and body shapes um 
speed, footwork, could just dance around you round after round. But people also forget he was a big heavyweight in that era. And he was throwing sickening punches. You know, you'd, you'd see him flick out a, you know, a straight right, hit someone on the nose and it'd fall over. And, you know, I think we forget that, Ali, because we've become so obsessed with the rumble in the jungle, the thrill in Manila, and then the decline. And we forget that actually this guy made miracles happen in a ring. And, you know, I always try and bring this back because it's almost a disservice to say Muhammad Ali was just a boxer. He wasn't. He He's one of the great human beings of the last few hundred years. You know, he will, you know, he, he should almost be on, the, on Mount Rushmore, so to speak. There, there should be something there that says this guy transcended everything. And, you know, the losses truly felt, you know, I, I did say we've had 20 years to prepare ourselves for it, but still, you know. Yeah, still a tough bill to swallow, isn't it? And one of the hurtful things, I guess, is just wanting to know, what did he think? You know, you see all the things that happen in boxing now, and you just love to know Ali's opinion. And then you think, how did someone who was so articulate, who loved to talk so much, how did he cope spiritually with the fact that he couldn't do that anymore? And, you, you know, you almost try and, you know, try and put yourself in his shoes and go, wow. You know, you went from being the guy who had something to say on everything, and, and now we're in a position where, he, he's unable to do that. But you know the mind is still sharp. So it, it's, it's, there are a lot of things that make, you know, his life should be celebrated, but it also hurts that we've lost one of the great minds of our time. Because I do. I, I, I do. What, what does Muhammad Ali think of Floyd? You know, what would he have thought of George Foreman coming back in 87? What did he think of all of these things? You know, these are questions you'd, you'd love to have asked him, and we never had the opportunity. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. He think he will, but I know he won't. They tell me George is good, but I'm twice as nice. And I'm going to stick to his butt like white old rice. That's right. That's the greatest of all time. Of all time. Okay, so that's an excerpt from uh, the build-up to the Rumble in the Jungle with George Foreman that you just had then. Uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and where that all comes from. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, Terry, was what are the three fights, if it's, you just alluded to that we tend to focus on Thriller and Nilla and Rumble Jungle, what were the three fights that would you say that define Ali's career then? Um, you know, in no order of magnitude, obviously the first Sonny Liston fight. Um, 1964. I was going to say March. Never really sure on the dates, but it was 1964. <laughs> Don't worry too much about it. So prior to prior to the first Liston fight, Ali had fought. I think it's Doug Jones, tough fighter who had who had taken Ali, taken him the distance, had really tested him. And Sonny Liston was in the crowd. And what Liston basically said was, you know, if you put me in the room with Ali, I'll get arrested for murder. And that was the general feeling at the time. Sonny Liston was a ferocious puncher, um, deceptively good boxer, but was just knocking people out for fun. Um, Ali, heavy, heavy underdog. No journalist really gave him a hope. You know, the fight comes along and he just bewilders Sonny Liston. What Liston was used to was people planting their feet. So just being more or less in range and he could walk them down and just hurt them. And eventually, you know, he hit you a few times and you lost interest. Ali was just able to break his spirit by flicking out the jab because he was a big man and he just circled him. Just as, as we call it in our, in our club, he worked the circle. So he moved off to the left, flicking out that jab, kept circling Sonny Liston until 
in the seventh round, I think Liston said, you know, I'm not carrying on. So basically quits on his stool. Says I he was remember, injured. There's a, there's a quote like Ali some, says something along the lines of, I'm going to dance around him so fast he's going to feel like he's surrounded. <laughs> and it was like that though. If, 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 you, if you watch the fight, you know, and to all our listeners, watch a copy of the fight and you can see Liston's morale slowly start to slip as he realises he's not going to land a glove on Ali. And, you know, that shocked the world. If you saw the celebrations afterwards, you know, there, there are a lot of iconic images of Muhammad Ali, you know, gloved fist pointing at the crowd going, I told you, I am the greatest. You know, so for me, that's the fight that announced him to the world. So that's one of the great ones. Um, in terms of the best I've seen him move, Cleveland Williams, 1966. So Muhammad Ali fought Cleveland Williams. I think at the time, Cleveland Williams, 60 fight, 65 fight veteran, had a good few knockouts, but he was a bit old, but he was durable. And if anyone gets a chance, it's it's only three rounds long, but the way Ali is just there, hands down, you know, just using his upper body movement to evade punches, some sickening shots going in there. Absolutely incredible in my eyes. Like when you watch that, that's, that's, that's a high watermark of just boxing skill. So, from the from the pre-Vietnam era, I think they're the two definitive fights in my eyes. You can mention the, the the Patterson and the Ernie Terrell fights for you know for the whole Muhammad Ali thing, and you know they were great fights in their own right. But I think they were more punishment beatings. So <laughs> yeah. And then if we look post-Vietnam, then I think we have to we have to say the Rumble in the Jungle for exactly the same reason that the Liston fight significant. So you had George Foreman who was. 40 fights in, 37 knockouts. He had decimated both Ken Norton and Joe Frazier in a combined four rounds, I think it was. I might be wrong. Someone will correct me on that one. Um, both Eddie Futch fighters, both men that gave Ali all kinds of trouble. You know, they all went the distance with Ali. And Foreman basically obliterated them. And no one could see what Ali could do to counteract George Foreman. So, you know, I think it, I might be wrong on this. I think for that camp, he had Larry Holmes as a sparring partner. He was definitely one of them. And you know, the initial fight was meant to happen in, in terms of British time, summertime. Um, then there was the injury. And then the fight got postponed by six weeks. So there's all all this confusion happening in Zaire. You know, there's... Yeah, cause it, can you explain why they ended up having to fight in what is now the... Democratic Republic of Congo, but what was then Zaire? What, what, why was that? Was that they put the money to, up. That was literally the so, only reason. So, was so that was Don King's kind of welcome to the big leagues of boxing. So Don King basically said, "Look, I was going to call. I was going to say Lumumba. It wasn't Lumumba. Forget who the the president of Zaire was. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Forgive me, guys. Sorry, I should have been more on point on that one. Yeah, you um, should, Terry. That's that's appalling boxing now, knowledge. Martin, this is when we need Martin. Um, <laughs> I guarantee he doesn't know. <laughs> so so Don King essentially said, look, if you guys give me $15 million, I'll get Ali to fight George Foreman here. So he he's done the deal, you know, saying to Ali and Foreman, look, here's the deal. Um, You know, I think that was the infamous time where Don King came in with Joe Frazier, left with George Foreman after the fight. It was something like that. <laughs> so one of those great stories of Don King. So he put, yeah, he made the deal before he had the money. So the Zion government said, yeah, we'll put the money up. And they did. It was a whole extravaganza. James Brown was there. It was, it was, I mean, it was a massive event. You know, you've got the greatest boxer 
against a guy who no one believed could be beaten. And he was just decimating everyone. And then, you know, the fight happened. Ali, you know, I don't think anyone apart from his closest circle knew what tactics he was going to go in with. And he did. But surely, like, for it to have been such a massive fight, it must have been, there must have been an assumption that he could win. Could you, I mean, is there any modern day sort of equivalent in terms of a fighter versus fighter that you could go with here? I mean, it sounds to me like if you took, say, Fury Klitschko, and I'm talking about styles or anything like that, with that sort of fight, it's on a knife edge that who could possibly, you know, either fight could win. But the way you describe it, it's like, Everyone expected Foreman to win. No one knew what he was going to bring different to the fight, or Ali could bring to the fight to win. So, who, what? Give us some context as to. So, so there's a there's a great clip on YouTube, and I think it's it might be when Foreman takes out Frazier, and they've got Muhammad Ali ringside, and they go, "How is it? How is it this guy?" Just took out two men who took you the distance. You know, you've gone, you've gone, what was it? You've gone twenty-four rounds with Joe Frazier, and this guy's done him in, you know, done him in two. Twenty-four rounds. Hey, who wants to do that? <laughs> so he went twenty-four rounds with Joe Frazier. Foreman went two, and so the question is then, what are you going to do? And if you remember, I think Muhammad Ali's quote was, "Listen, yeah, I'll retire him. If I fight him, I'll retire him. You know, was it? Yeah, time up, box clever, time up." You know, after five rounds, I'll finish him. It was, it was there's a great quote. Um, you know, guys, dig it out if you can find it. A- absolutely brilliant. But it was prescient. That's the word I'd use because that's what he went on to do. He just basically drained Foreman's will. Because when you're a big bully like that, there's nothing worse than seeing someone take your worst shots. So Ali in training camp just lay on the ropes and got absolutely battered because psychologically he had to prepare himself for that. And so if you see that fight, essentially Foreman punched himself out. He he hadn't had that much experience of going the distance in big fights like that. And then you know, by the eighth, we all know what happened. He got knocked out. And I mean, a legend was not only confirmed, but enhanced. And then you go, go the final fight that probably defines Ali is the Thrin in Manila. And the view in Ali's camp was... Frazier was on the slide. Everyone thought Frazier was on the slide after, you know, Foreman had you know, decimated him. And the assumption was time was catching up with Joe Frazier. So they thought, we'll take the fight. You know, it's a nice, easy payday with a Frazier on the slide. And so that's what happened. Not, not realising, you know, Frazier was essentially Ali's nemesis. And you've got to thank Eddie Futch for that. So, you know, Eddie Futch, one of the great boxing trainers of all time, a mentor, to many of the modern day trainers and you know a trainer of guys like Joe Frazier Ken Norton latter day he was with Montel Griffin and Riddick Bowe um god rest his soul uh you know Eddie Fudge great trainer but he he just said to Frazier look Ali is talented but you know he's always open for the left hook and Frazier could always get himself up for an Ali fight and essentially you had 14 rounds of savagery um Ali definitely led the early going, you know, using his, you know, boxing skills. And then he tried the rope-a-dope to try and take the sting out of Frazier's punches. But Frazier has a great engine. So Ali just shipped punishment and then came back later in the fight, made the adjustments and started peppering him with the straight combinations. 
And so in the 14th, with Frazier's eye essentially swollen, he was virtually blind in the fight. Eddie Futch called the fight off. Um, but you can see both men were broken, and that's probably a good point for both of them to retire because a large chunk of who they were was left in the ring that night. Um, quick question then. Why did these... <clears throat> Why did these rounds go slightly off off the Ali topic? But why did these rounds you, you're quoting uh, like twenty four rounds of one fight? This is the fourteenth round you're talking. It ended there. When did fights become twelve rounds? And like when when did this happen? And why did it happen? And I mean, it makes sense why it happened, I suppose. But so it happened. At, I think it happened at different points in the eighties. But you were looking at. I mean, people were suffering health wise. You were suffering as a result of these fifteen round yeah, fights. Shocker. So it was right. Let's just shorten the fights. <laughs> my question has always been nah. did it reduce the number of punches so I think for the last 30 years there's been 12 round fights for, for championships right okay um, don't ask me to quote which was the first 12 round championship fight I can't remember off the Terry top of my head. oh you're sacked I uh, can't believe it yeah taxi <laughs> first the Zaye president oh, oh. oh Terry I'm so mad with you <laughs> no, right okay so you said uh, the Thriller Manila was a good place for both Frazier and Ali to would have been a good place for him to quit. He didn't. He went on. Um, wh- why didn't he retire? And what what then happened in his later fights? I think with people who operate at that level, there's a fair degree of delusion that you have to have. So you almost have to be crazy enough to believe the nonsense you say. I think you find it with most great people. Um, Which can be described as self-belief as well, of course, but... Well, take your, oh, no, no, it's, it's no, beyond that you're saying well beyond that it's right. that delusion you know if you're walking around saying I am the greatest and you're putting that pressure on yourself and you keep delivering that's a different mindset so you've mm. you've just won against Joe Frazier why would you you're Superman at this point you've beaten Foreman you've conquered Frazier why would you retire so you have additional fights you know you have your Ken Norton fights but then the decline really starts to set in with the Spinks fight I think that was 78 Eight, and then he fought Holmes after that. So again, Spinks in the rematch when he wins the title for the third time. Then fights Holmes, loses to Holmes. And remember, Larry Holmes was his chief sparring partner for a long time. So he found it hard to fight a Muhammad Ali in decline. And at various points in that match, you can see Holmes looking to the ref and saying, please stop this fight. Because it was a one-sided beating, essentially. Um... And it was, it's not, it's not a nice one to watch, nor is a Burbick fight where you can see, you know, the people around Ali are just basically still milking him. You know, that one last payday for everyone. And he paid a heavy price for that. You know, um, you, you almost wonder what Ali we would have had had he stopped in 75. Um, just watching the Burbick fight, watching the Holmes fight, very, very hard fights to watch, bearing in mind what this man had achieved up until yeah, that point. Of course, yeah. Well, if anything can like brighten the spirits of that, <laughs> it's, it's a story um, about the Holmes fight. So the when Ali fights Holmes, and uh, as Terry says, he uh, Ali takes a, a beating. In the audience that night was a young Mike Tyson, and uh, he he sits in the car on the way home, and uh, he was gutted about the way that he. That Ali had been beaten. Ali was his hero, and uh, he, he says that on the way back to, as he drove home to Catskill, um, nobody in the car said a word. We were all so upset. The next morning, Cuz said uh, on the phone, he was on the phone with Muhammad Ali 
after taking his shellacking from Holmes. He said, I have this young black kid who is going to be heavyweight champion someday and I want you to talk to him. So Tyson in that interview could even recall the exact date that it happened, October 2nd. And he spoke to Ali on the phone and said, when I grow up, I'll fight Holmes and I'll get him back for you. And he said this when he was 14 years old. <laughs> so fast forward and at 21, he then takes on Larry Holmes and gives him a beating. Uh, and when eventually he then said he spoke to Ali and he says, remember what I said, get him for me. Ali said to Tyson. So I, 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 I love that story. The fact that, <laughs> you know, Ali had inspired such, um, loyalty and love in his, in his fan base that one of them happened to be a guy that was so sort of, endeared to him that he wants to get the guy back who beat him <laughs> and what i find fascinating is if you if when people ask mike tyson who would have won you versus muhammad ali he's adamant ali would have beaten him senseless <laughs> you know Ty, tyson's a tyson a is a great historian of the sport and b is respectful of the greats you know, so, so tyson's a guy who say look you know those guys were greater than i am you know ali was greater than i am foreman frazier all greater than i am and I, one of the things I do like about you know Mike Tyson is that he understands that, and I guess it just reflects the impact Ali had when you're looking at Tyson, who's potentially one of the all-time greats, and he's deferential to Muhammad Ali too. Uh, quick question: This was sent in by Martin Theobald. <laughs> oh. No, he, well, he we were texting the other day, and he spoke, um, and he sort of said, "Well, he said he." He phrased it as a statement, but I'm going to, I'm going to phrase it as a question. Um, and it's, do you think that in the modern day, Ali would be too small to dominate a heavyweight division? Um, do you think that he would have to fight a cruiserweight? It's a tricky question. So, you know, you go look and go, if he had access to the modern diet, training methods, would he still be boxing at 218 to 220 pounds? Probably not. He what did he what did he stand at? He stood what six three, which for a heavyweight is not that tall. So similar size to David Hay, for example. So if you put him in now against guys like Fury, he'd struggle, but he'd struggle more because you're just getting hit by bigger men. They're leaning on you, and it's it's quite physically draining. I don't think skill wise he'd be found wanting at at any weight, to be honest with you, and. It's just a tragedy. He'd probably have to fight a cruiser weight. But could he make the weight a cruiser? Not sure. I don't know where you'd put him. Jeez, oh, I, I think you've got me on that one. I don't know where you'd put him. He's he's quick. Yeah, Speed-wise, he, he'd clean up a cruiser weight, I think. He'd comfortably do that. Heavyweight, he'd be good until he fought someone who was, you know, six. Six seven six eight like a Deontay Wilder. <laughs> you are describing a modern day David Hay, <laughs> clearing up a cruiserweight, and then when he goes into the big leagues at heavyweight, Struggle. he struggles. Yeah. So you heard it here, folks. Hay and Ali on par. <laughs> no. But but then if you if you rolled things back and said how would the how would the modern heavyweights have coped in the sixties? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a different exactly. kind of fishing yeah. together, isn't it? Especially doing, I mean, you've got to consider like 24 rounds and stuff like that. It's, it's a, it's a but, different ball game. But let, let, let's turn it around and say, for all those old school skills Ali has, 
would he be able to nullify an Anthony Joshua? I think he would still be able to do that because there's some clever things that Ali does. People focus on some of the flashy stuff that happened earlier in his career or, you know, that you focus on the highlights, but it's the small things he used to do. Like you'd watch him put his gloves on top of Foreman's gloves in the fight. Number one, that tires Foreman out because he has to hold the weight of two of two arms because Ali's pushing down mm. and Foreman's having to resist. It would knock the gloves out the way so that he could gain access to the, yeah. to the shots. Yeah, he, so. and, and also just yeah, holding the gloves down <laughs> so he knows which hand's coming next. He can feel it. All these small things, just you know, shoving shoving the shoulder so he's off balance and he can't punch. It's, it's these these lost skills that modern boxers don't seem to have anymore, but that make life easier especially when you're the underdog. So so these skills should be employed now by modern-day boxers, if they could. I think they should. Um, is, it, is it a case of skill? I mean, was Ali just so much more skillful than modern-day? I mean, clearly, a lot of boxers, yes. But, I mean, um, the same level as him, is he still is he beyond the skill level of these people? And that's why they don't do it, oh, because they can't. In the modern era, the, the closest is someone like a Roy Jones Jr. at his peak. In terms of just being so athletic throwing the unusual punches and, you know, basically rewriting the boxing manual. So Roy Jones Jr. is the closest, but I don't think he had the same boxing nous Ali had later in his career, which is why he was able to win for so long. But it's a lost art now. Definitely in the UK, we've got the, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of pad men, a lot of trainers. No one's really teaching these lost art, you know, the, the lost art of actually being able to fight, controlling your opponent, creating opportunities, you know, sometimes nullifying your opponent as well. It's just you punch, I punch, you punch, I punch until someone either falls down or the judges give their decision. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't suppose it's um, it's the most uh, crazy story to believe that Ali was that much more skillful than, than modern day boxers. And, uh, but I mean, and again, boxing was a different, was a different sport in as much as the way that it was refereed, the way that it, that just, well, everything about the sport, I suppose, virtually horse hair in your gloves, it's everything. Yeah, it's virtually a different sport. So, um, I suppose it's it's comparing apples and oranges, but um, yeah, nevertheless, it was uh, it's a it's a question. Going back to um, David Hay, we had a question on slightly on this, um, and I just wanted to get, but just because it seems like a, a good opportunity to sort of speak about that. How how good or bad actually is he? In I've got I mean that's me making the best of a question by John Mulhall or Mulhall 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 don't know I don't know what your name is mate hi John <laughs> at John Mulhall um, on Twitter and he I'm not going to tell you what his exact question is but um, the way that he phrased it but essentially he just wants to know he thinks he's rubbish essentially. Um, and he couldn't figure out if one of us on the podcast was a fanboy, in quotes. Um, but yeah, just um, what do you think? So, John, I'm a David Hay fan. Hi, how oh are you? Oh, God, that was the one you were talking about, John. There you go. Um, why am I a David Hay fan? Because I've seen what David Hay does. And he's good. Remember, this guy's... good as Lee, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Abuse him on Twitter, guys. <laughs> But look, he's been boxing since he was 10 or 11 years old. So that's 20-odd years of boxing. If you're saying to me 
he's rubbish. I mean, on what basis is he rubbish? If you say he's fighting people who are well below his level, yes. If you're telling me he's rubbish, I disagree with that. He's not. He's If he could boil down to cruiserweight, he'd clean up a cruiserweight. At heavyweight, outside of Fury, maybe of Vladimir Klitschko, I think he probably beats the rest of them. That's just my opinion. Um, I don't know. What, I don't know what else he wants me to say. He, he, he's, okay. he's good. He's slick. Good head movement. He's not as athletic as he was maybe ten years ago. But remember, the guy's been boxing long enough that he's got that now. So it's like we said about Muhammad Ali yeah. earlier. When you get older, your athleticism doesn't really come with you. It diminishes, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So then you have to have that nous that says, yeah. I'm going to do more while doing less. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair answer. I mean, my personal opinion would be, I I don't like the way that he goes about handling himself in the media it's, it, and the way that he goes about every aspect of the non-side, the, the non-side of boxing part of boxing, if you like. But when it comes to his actual ability in the ring, I don't, I don't think, I think he's shown enough to to be respected for his ability. So I turn that around and say, if you had David Hay and Anthony Joshua at the same age, and you had to back one of them in terms of you will be the next pay per view superstar, who would you put your money behind? You put your money behind David Hay. Look at David Hay, dresses well, speaks well, has an opinion on a whole range of different topics. Does stuff in the community. It's not very well publicized, but does stuff in the community. Um, is in, I mean, supports up and coming fighters. David does a lot of stuff that goes unseen. He's, is, is this, are we talking, uh, are we talking Hay and, I mean, because Anthony Joshua has the Hearn machine behind him, doesn't he? So that's. I tell you now, Eddie Hearn would take David Hay right now. Because so you, you think would 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 therefore at the same age and he had to make a choice out of the two you think Hearn would choose Hay over over Joshua? Yes, because if you look, David naturally appeals to a whole range of different demographics. You know, you're from Bermondsey, so you've got that Millwall crowd, which means you've got the football crowd on your side already. He dresses well, so he's got that you know slightly intellectual but still love to watch fighting sort of crowd he's got that you know I, I jokingly describe him as he's probably the he's a, he's a Mayfair boxer now he's that guy who can he can walk into these private members clubs in Mayfair and they know who he is they know what he does you know he straddles that celebrity slash athlete role yeah, see that's the part I'm not too keen on but but he's still doing it in the ring and he needs to prove that he can still do it in the ring. Yeah, he does now, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But look, you've got to give the guy a year. When you've been out for that long, I think you need a year to get into the routine. Fighting, training, resting, fighting, training, resting. And then just you kick on next year. What, he, what he does in the next 12 months will be will be telling to what his legacy is going to be when he finally does hang up his gloves, I'd have said. If he, do, if he takes on another two or three bums, then you know people are just going to say that what's the point of him coming back? Aren't they really? I mean, he needs to. He needs to, like you've said there, he's 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 got back into the swing of things. What he decides to do with his career, what he's able to do with his career, the next twelve months, I think is going to define at least how people have seen his comeback. Agreed. In terms of the comeback, yes. In terms of his career, the guy dominated at cruiserweight. Yeah. Came yeah. to heavyweight, beat Valuev, and people can say, ah, oh, you know, Valuev was there to be beaten. Maybe, maybe not, but he did it. You know, he gave up. <laughs> height reach everything and he still managed to to win that didn't do so well against vladimir but then you know apart from fury how many people have 
So he's had a good career. Um, a Hall of Fame career? Yes, you have to at Cruiserweight. Yeah, he's a, he's a definite first ballot Hall of Fame of what he did at Cruiserweight. And then you move, so you look at him and go, okay, a heavyweight still needs to prove himself. But what you ask yourself this question, Andy, why isn't anyone calling him out? Apart from Tony Bellew, why isn't anyone calling him out? Uh, I, I think that's, I think that's valid. But but I, what I, if I was going to play devil's advocate, I'd say Fury wouldn't want to call him out out of spite because of the fact David Hay pulled out of two fights through whatever um, f- from Fury, and he doesn't want to give him that shot. I mean, not that. He has the choice to give him that shot right now because he's busy with Klitschko. But even if he gets that chance, I don't think he'd give it to him. Um, And then I think Joshua has his sights set on Fury. Um, And whether that's going to happen or not, certainly that's the way he's positioning himself or certainly that's the way that Hernan and the matchroom guys are positioning themselves. We want Fury. Whether that's a complete token gesture and hollow, uh, you know, that's another matter entirely. But I don't think people are calling him out because what? Who is going to call him out apart from Joshua and Fury? You call him out. Look, the guy's bringing in three million viewers to Dave. He's selling out the O2. Basically, it's all self-funded. That lets you know that there's money in a David Hay fight. It doesn't matter who you are. Deontay Wilder versus David Hay, money fight. Joshua versus Hay, money fight. Fury versus Hay, money fight. But they've mm-hmm. tried before, so I understand why that won't happen. So there are all of these fights that could happen, but they don't want David because he's dangerous. When you've got money behind Deontay Wilder, you're not going to run that risk of him getting knocked out. But um, but then, surely on that basis, so you're saying the risk-reward is is not there for them. But you've got other, other boxers, haven't you, in the same... Maybe not the same league in terms of amount of viewers being brought, but someone like Chisora brings a certain amount of viewers, don't they not? Yeah, but Chisora could be beaten. Like no So therefore wouldn't boxers wouldn't these boxers be calling out Chisora to try and get that same so that portion of those viewers without the risk? Derek's not Der, Derek's not David Hayes. No, so, alright, so, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. I'm just trying to <laughs> <laughs> You you know if you if you read tomorrow Anthony Joshua to fight David Hay in October, oh, it'd be massive. You're going, and I, yeah, I yeah. would love to see that fight personally. Yeah. yeah, so you tell me Anthony Joshua's fighting Derek Chisora, I'm like, nah. I just think that, that, that right now Joshua is more interested in trying to unify the division. That's what his ultimate sights are. So fighting David Hay is a, just a money maker when he, they're going to chase Fury. Is my opinion. Yeah, based Fury. on what they're saying, anyway. Well, we'll see. Because I, I will not be surprised if Fury calls out Joshua after he beats Klitschko, and then we'll see. Let's make let's see if they make the fight happen this that'd year. Be, yeah, well, that'd be good. Because Fury will do it. You know that, don't you? Fury will do it, and then we'll see how serious Eddie Hearn is. <laughs> It'll all happen over the next couple of months. Well, Henry Cooper's nothing but a tramp. He's a bum. I'm the world's greatest. He must fall in five rounds, but if you talk about me, I'll cut it three. I'll never fight another fellow as tough as Doug Jones. Not even that big ugly bear Sonny Lister. Is he your next fight? Well, after I annihilate this Henry Cooper, I want that bear. And what's going to happen to him? Bad. What's going to happen to him? He might be great, but he'll fall in eight. I'm the prettiest fighter in the ring today. That's my label. Let's move to a large story that's broken the last week, and that is pros being voted in by Aber to fight in the Olympics. Uh, there's been a bit of a uproar about this. Lots of lots of boxers coming out and and. Uh, 
some being on board of it, some being pretty negative about it. Uh, what's your thoughts? So when it's an interesting position. So if you look at boxing now, we essentially have we have professional amateurs and we've got amateur pros. So, and what I mean by that is, if you look at Team GB, they're all paid to be amateur boxers. So they're allowed to train two or three times a day, four days a week with their three days rest, nutrition is taken care of, physiotherapy and all these sorts of things. They're, they're, they're boxing machines and you know, particularly suited for the three three-minute rounds and in the case of the women, four two-minute rounds. So someone will call me up and go, actually, it's all three threes now. I don't know. Um, so you have that. You then have the World Series of Boxing where these paid amateurs can then, you know, no headguards, no vests, fight five three-minute rounds, and they get paid. So we have very experienced amateurs, elite-level athletes, and then you've got professionals who are coming up now who are still doing their their four-rounders, working as personal trainers on the side, so they can't fully dedicate themselves because they can't make a living off boxing. And so the line is blurred where in the old days you could go, he's an amateur, he's a pro. But now the line's blurred because too many people can get into the game. Which means the talent pool for professional boxing is is big, but there's not a lot of it. So then you ask yourself, why wouldn't you let those guys enter anyway? They're not going to beat, you know, a Joe Joyce. They're not going to. You know, but it's good for their career. It's good for their visibility and it allows them to, you know, potentially build a career. So I have no issue with it. From a safety perspective, I definitely have no issue because it's three three-minute rounds. There isn't much that could happen in those three three-minute rounds, especially with the professionals. So I'm okay with it from, you know, you know, dispensing with the bollocks that amateurs are amateurs, pros are pros. I think that's utter nonsense. Everyone's training There's an argument to be made that they're different sports, though, isn't there not? Um, you know, in terms of uh, amateurs are all about point scoring, whereas professional boxing is about trying to knock someone's head off. But I think, oh, well, I think you'd happily take a stoppage as, as an amateur, too. So I don't, I don't think they're different sports. I think there's a difference in the gloves and there's a difference in the wraps. So... You can't punch as hard in the amateurs simply because you're limited to how much you can wrap your hands. And the gloves are quite pillowy, as we like to say. There's, there's no horse hair in those ones. It's, they're quite pillowy. You know, they're designed not to cause too much damage. So I think, in that sense, they're pretty similar sports. The, so they're, they're larger gloves. They're more padded gloves, right? Yeah, they're 12-ounce padded gloves. Whereas in the pros, you know, you can get all different kinds. So you can get, you know, a mix of horse hair and foam. You know, there's all kinds of different ones you can have in the pros, but the horse key message innards. Is, you can have horse innards. Well, yeah, to, to, to wrap your hands, why not? <laughs> but but a lot of people are coming up. I think the main bone of contention is: Would you want Vladimir Klitschko fighting some 18-year-old super heavyweight? And the answer to that is no. But I turn that around and go: Would Vladimir Klitschko want to get tested five times a year? you know, Olympic-style testing. I bet any money his answer to that will be no. So you won't see a lot of these professionals... For no specific reasons. Yeah, no. <laughs> allegedly. But none of these professional boxers will want to be tested because God knows what they'll find in their system. 
So, you, so you, please don't say about any specific boxers. No, I won't. <laughs> so yeah, the Olympic medal's great, but m- most of these people, look, Lennox already has one. Vladimir Klitschko already has one. What? Why would you put yourself through it again? Well, you might do if your name's Amir Khan and you decide to start boxing for Pakistan. <laughs> if only Britain had been more supportive to him, like funding him the whole way through his amateur days and filling out stadiums and giving him a massive fan base and following him all over the world. Oh, if only Britain was more supportive, then maybe he'd have decided to box for us again. I, I, I'm going I'm to defend him. He, he's, probably, he's probably just said, well, Team GB won't let me enter, so where else can I box? Is that true? Is yeah, that- they won't, of course they won't. They, they, they've invested so much money in their architecture that they don't want to rock that boat. And, you know, they want that control. You can't, you know. Once the pros get involved, you don't necessarily have that control. So, are you, so you're saying that no pros would be allowed in Team GB? I don't want to let any. They will, they will recruit the way that they currently do it now in four-year cycles. So at the end of this Olympics, a number of guys will turn pro. I'm guessing Joe Joyce will turn pro. If Boatsy gets gold, he'll turn pro. Um, Lawrence Ocolier probably will turn pro if he gets, if he medals well. So there's, there's a load of guys who will move on and GB have already looked, you know, do you know what? Who else can we get in? So these young guys like the McCormick brothers, uh, Daniel Dubois, they're all coming through now. It, is it always more profitable to be a professional boxer than it is to be an amateur boxer? No. It, it's very rare. A handful of boxers in this country make a good living from boxing. A handful. You're not earning 50 grand a year until you're European champion. Yeah, level. see, I'm thinking if you're a fully funded amateur boxer for Team GB, what's the incentive to turn professional if you're not necessarily going to make a killing... You know, what, why do they do it? Is it just because they feel it's a logical step or... Someone offers them money. So look at someone... Let's take Tom Stalker as an example. Captain of Team GB in 2012. Was an okay amateur, you know. Turned pro. I'm sure Frank Warren made it lucrative for him to turn pro. Was utterly useless as a pro. <laughs> Still struggling and... Same fence sitting as mine. <sighs> so, So he's a guy where you look at him and you go... Why wouldn't you just stay as an amateur? Because I don't know what it is. There's a 30 grand a year they get. And then whatever engagements you do, you know, you get an additional, top, additional fees on top of that. It's so, like being, say, a gymnast in my eyes. If you're a, 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 bo- a boxer of a Team GB, you can, you know, if you win a gold medal, you could then be on shredded wheat boxes for the next 10 years and, and probably, arguably, potentially make more money. I accept that. Uh, other boxers have done a lot better when they've come out. You know, for example, Amir Khan. He's done, he's done very well, and I'm sure he's made more money than he ever would have done as an amateur. But for many of them, it, it seems to me, well, let's put it this way. I don't know of any that have, have chosen to stay amateur and stick with Team GB. And I, and I wonder why that is. Um. Because some, it's a safe, it's a safe route for some of them, right? I think that will, I think it will change. I think you'll start to see career amateurs come through. And what I mean by that is there'll be people who lack the power to make an impact in the pros. Yeah. But they'll always be handy in the amateur ranks because they're busy and they can throw flashy combinations. If it, if, look, if it was me, I would probably stay amateur. Makes sense. Um, especially as the money involved goes up because I'm sure some of those guys from Kazakhstan are doing pretty well so they don't really need to turn pro 
yeah. unless they're special. If you're special, turn pro. Yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, I I accept the fact that boxers seemingly always have a high opinion of themselves, but surely there's some pragmatic individuals that go, mm, I don't know. Let's just say I'm a featherweight. I've won gold. I'm getting fully funded by Team GB. I could continue winning gold over the next. Like, I could win another gold in four years' time. I might as well just stick to being an amateur instead of trying to sell out stadiums. You know, as a fe- as a featherweight, I take that as an example. But you know. It just I don't I don't understand why nobody else has done it. Like just gone, mm, sort this, I'm gonna stay as an amateur. Instead of risking it. Nicola Adams has done it. But it's easier, I guess, on the female side because there's yeah. no money in yeah. the pro ranks. Which oh. is a tragedy, but it is what it is. And Ironically, if like if there was a if 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 she had the same standing in male boxing and she was male, she'd have made a killing because she's a poster girl for the sport, right? Exactly. So if she was a poster boy, I accept it would be more difficult for her to make such an impact. But it's ironic how she's stayed amateur because it makes sense. Whereas if she was the same level in male boxing, it would make sense for her to turn pro. Yeah, she'd be under pressure to turn pro. <laughs> um, you know, oh, go and prove yourself against, against the professionals and all of that. I think it will change, though. Once they make this whole amateur thing a bit more lucrative, um, you'll see. You'll see. And why? Would they, why is that coming? Well, you need people to dedicate themselves more and more. You know, because the levels will only go up. So look at the Kazakhstan team. Like they're full time. They're full time Olympic boxers. We'll call. It. Let's not even call them amateurs. They're full time Olympic boxers, and they get paid well for it. Like you know, six figure bonuses if you come back with a gold. Yeah, so, it's an incentive and a half, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. And you're not going to earn that for a while as a professional. Okay, and so just um, briefly back to Khan, you can accept the fact that he's uh, doing it for Pakistan because what, why does, what's his motivations for doing it? I don't think he'll enter. Um, well, he can't. He's got Ramadan coming up. So how are you going to get over Ramadan and then try and qualify? It's not going to happen. Yeah, that was his argument for not fighting last year, wasn't it? During that sort of yeah. when they were talking about arranging fights for him. So he didn't want to... Well, it was when the whole Mayweather stuff was flying yeah. about, wasn't it? He said, oh, I can't because of Ramadan and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Now, apparently, no dramas. I'll just... Nah, he, he, he won't. He won't. Like, I'm hearing um, the, the Cameroonian boxer in Dam has said he might do the Olympics, but he did it in 2004. So I think he got a bronze in 2004. I, to be honest, if I'm being honest with you, if I was a good pro making a good living, I wouldn't, it's not really going to add anything. The only pros you'll get are those guys who aren't making much money and would likely be from nations that don't have the boxing infrastructure that we have over here, for example. But we'll see. Yes, I'm, I'm sure this year will be quite low in terms of turnout, but 2020 is when we'll see what this rule really means okay right let's move on and we're on to listeners questions uh we still don't have a jingle and that's just not the way we roll here so i'm not gonna do it (laughs) (laughs) um i'm inundated with requests for um ringtones but i will send them out individually (laughs) right anyway questions we're gonna fire some at you now terry go for it right the first one comes from at Warrior Boxing 12, he asks, if Frampton beats Quig, Leo Santa Cruz, and then finishes the year with someone like Selby or Donaire, is that enough for fight of the year contention? 
yeah, that it, that's three challenging fights. You know, we look at the win against Quig now and we say maybe Quig wasn't that good, but at the time people were calling it a 50-50 fight, although in my opinion there's no such thing. If he then goes on to fight Leo Santa Cruz in July, I think it's something like, what's it, end of July? That's a pretty big fight because he'd be stepping up in weight, and I guess that's why he's vacated both his titles now. Um, for a third fight, who would we like to see him fight? Denair, I think Denair's a bit over it, and you'd fight him just for the name. If, if he fought Rigondo, not only would he be fighter of the year, he'd elevate himself to being one of the one of the great British fighters. So I think you could look at it that way. But fighter of the year is quite tricky because you want to look at guys like who's who's Triple G gonna box next. So he could he could have a sequence of fights where he goes up to one six eight and starts calling people out. So there's a chance for that happening. Andre Ward versus Kovalev. If Ward can beat Kovalev convincingly does he become fighter of the year? I think it's harder at the smaller weight groups because we we traditionally like you know the bigger weight classes and we attach more importance to the wins that happen there. Yeah, but me too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I'm high on Frampton. I think he's done everything right in his career. He's never ducked a challenge, so you can only respect the guy. Okay, that's a fair evaluation. Next question from. Adam Lane, and that's at Alan999. It's a question based on, it says, is it ever possible for an undefeated fighter to have lived up to their true potential? Now, I think I would probably rephrase this to, is it possible that an undefeated fighter can ever have not lived up to their potential? The thing with undefeated fighters, you don't know what the ceiling is. So we look at Mayweather, and we go Mayweather 49-0, but we don't know what his ceiling was. I think once you taste defeat, we know what your ceiling is. So with Mayweather, people say, ah, oh, Sugar Ray... Are talking about weights here? No, no, um, talent-wise. So people say, Floyd Mayweather versus Sugar Ray Leonard, what would happen? And then, you know, you turn it around and you say, we know how good Sugar Ray was, because we know when he lost and we saw him avenge his losses. We've never seen Floyd avenge a loss, so we don't know how good Floyd is. So we can't say Ray Leonard is better than Floyd Mayweather, because... You know, for we know Floyd is fighting in first or second gear. And maybe there's four or five more gears to come. But no one took him to that place where that was required. And that's not a failing on his part. It's more failing on the opponents who didn't, you know, test him enough. So you all, you always have that question with undefeated fighters. I think we have the same with Calzaghi. But I think Calzaghi was tested a lot more, particularly later in his career when he fought guys like Jones and Hopkins. You know, even the Robin Reed fight going further back. Well, we found out how good Calzaghi was and you get a sense that you got kind of a better sense of where his ceiling was because he had to fight hard to win his fights. Whereas you look at Floyd, Floyd makes it look a lot easier than Joe Calzaghi did. So I think that's how I'd answer that one. But I think the notion of being undefeated is garbage anyway. You know, all most of the great boxers we, we revere all suffered defeats and I think there's something to be said about coming back from a defeat and maybe that's the thing Floyd lacks in his career is that loss that he could avenge and avenge decisively you know we love and if he even if he had the minerals to avenge it because there's, there's some boxers um you know someone like Nassim Hamid although 
uh, he said he said in an interview subsequently that it was due to his hands. He couldn't the hand his hands when when he was generating the power that he was, his hands just couldn't take the punishment, and he was having cortisone injections just to carry on. But as soon as he lost, he also left. So it's arguable. I mean, it's obviously he's, he just he, he couldn't bring himself to fight again after that defeat. He just couldn't get up for it. And you have to admire a boxer for coming back from a defeat as much as you know as anything else. Yeah, but he lost to a legend in Marco Antonio Barrera. There, there is no shame in losing to Barrera because a lot of great boxers did. But I think it was a number of things. And I remember around the time Naz had built, I think it was like a five million pound training facility. And it was somewhere like the Abbeydale Road in Sheffield. And I was shown it and I said, you can't train in this sort of environment and be hungry. You know, it had the, the hot tub and everything. It was, I guess that was the point you realised maybe this guy's not as hungry Decadent. as he used to be. Yeah, you, there's always that point where, you know, I think as Marvin Hagler said, it's, it's very hard to to go running when you're getting out of bed in silk pyjamas or something along those lines. It's, that's, it's a, that's a tough one. Oh, okay, it was the chocolate vending machines that have finally got him though because he <laughs> kept going back there for the last 10 years. <laughs> okay, next question comes from Sam Khan at Blessed With Work. She asks... She says it's a total novice question, but I, I like it. It's um, She doesn't get federation rankings. Why is Anthony Joshua almost top in one, but not listed in the others? It's, it's the same for a, a lot of boxers. Can you explain? Yes. So so right now, Anthony Joshua, IBF champion. So when you look at the rankings, he's top of that one. He's also, if I remember correctly, number one contender for the WBC belt, which means... He's eligible. I think they might have to have an eliminator for him to fight Deontay Wilder. So it's actually that ranking's utterly meaningless because AJ's champion. Why would you then take 25% of a purse to go and fight Deontay Wilder because you're his mandatory? So that's actually, he's just taking up a spot there, which he doesn't really need. So this is what will happen. You will, you know, the WBC, we'll take the WBC as an example. They will have their rankings and if you have a fighter, you will lobby your fighter for your fighter to be pushed up those rankings. And so what what you'll say is, if you're Eddie Hearn, you'll say, look, I've got my heavyweight. Let's we'll say, say Dillian White. I've got Dillian White. Dillian White's about to fight Pulev. And we think that would put him in the top 10 of your heavyweight rankings. And you lobby for that. They'll, you know, they'll have a committee where they decide what the rankings are. And then you get put in there. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that it applies to all the other governing bodies because they'll go through their own process. And generally speaking, governing bodies have their favorites. You know, and it's, you'll, you'll see this reflected in the rankings. WBO, normally very European focused because that's where they get the majority of their revenue. WBC, very. Frank Warren focused. Yeah. Very. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got the, the WBC, very American slash Mexican focused because that's where they get most of their revenue. And you see the, how they bend over backwards for guys like Floyd and Canelo. Um, the WBA and the IBF are different. The IBF are probably the fairest governing body because everyone remembers what happened in the eighties where, you know, they got found essentially just rigging. It was, it was just a corrupt organization. So the IBF will always stick to their rules. And if you notice, they currently have their number one and number two slots are empty. Which. How does that make any sense? Um, so they were, so Fury was up there, mm. but then Fury won 
and then they stripped him of the title. So they had they now need to find somewhere to put Fury in those rankings. So what what so what the IBF will do is the, so my sense is the IBF will they're a joke essentially. No no no, no, no they're probably the better run of the governing bodies. So 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 the IBF will keep those slots free. They'll look at who wins between Vladimir and Tyson Fury. The loser will get put into one of those slots because you know they're the two best in the world. So he, it would make sense to put one of those in alongside probably Joseph Parker who'll get moved up. Okay. Um, let's move on to a second question from at Warrior Boxing 12. He asks you, who are the most underrated boxers, UK and Irish boxers? Um, Ricky Burns doesn't get enough credit f- uh, considering that he's become a three times champ. It's utter garbage, man. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no disrespect to the question Oops. answer. I, 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 I take serious issue with this idea that, you know, we should respect Ricky Burns for being a three weight world champion. Like, look at the guy he just beat. That's embarrassing. You know, at that 140 division, you have guys like Broner, you know, even Ashley Theophane, for God's sake. You know, f- I mean, if he had fought Ashley Theophane for that title, I'd still say it's a hollow victory. You've got to fight someone like a Broner. You've got to fight someone like a, like a Victor Postel or, or Terence Crawford at that level. Even, even, even the guys that Crawford's beaten fight one of those guys. But, you know, Ricky Burns, he's 33 years old. We know he's had personal demons to, to deal with and it's taken a toll on him. So in my eyes, he gets, he's got the, the acclaim he deserves, probably a bit too much. So I'm not, I'm not sold on this nicking world titles and then trying to con the boxing public into believing that there's some significance behind that. <laughs> fight Postal, fight Crawford again. Fight Broner or shut up, because really they'll just try and find a way of getting him an Ashley Theophane fight. Okay, so what is that most underrated win by a UK or Irish boxer? Like, who doesn't get enough? Who doesn't get enough credit? Um, I still don't think Fury gets enough credit, and I know people go, "Oh, but he got all of this attention." He beat Vladimir Klitschko, and beat him relatively easily. That's the thing that people ignore. He beat him without really having to move through the gears. You're convinced he's going to beat him again, aren't you? Well, I don't see what Vladimir can do differently. Okay. You, you box on the back foot, Fury will pick you off with a jab. It's an, it's an easy day's work for him. You come forward and try and attack him, you're going to walk onto a shot and get put down because they're both chinny. So I'm like, what can Vladimir Klitschko do? He's, he's, he's too old to force the pace. So I don't know. Like, and you can't be cagey against the guy that's bigger than you. So I think that's an underrated win. Um, just in general, someone who's underrated, Ashley Theophane. You know, Ashley Theophane fought Broner for a world title. And yes, you can say, you know, being a Floyd fighter helps. But that's how you go after a world title. You fight someone like a Broner. Hint, hint, Ricky Burns. Um, so he resurrected his career because he was, he was losing to guys like Darren Hamilton in the UK and we to be honest, in the boxing world we thought he was finished he went over to America you know got work as Floyd's sparring partner proved himself out there and they're looking after him so I think he's underrated in terms of you know the stuff he's achieved I think other under you know in terms of skills Lee Haskins grossly underrated grossly underrated and why Match won't put him on one of their shows is beyond me because I think he's super skillful and super talented 
So I think he's also underrated. We've got we're just going through all the lists here of people who are underrated. Um, O'Hara Davis. Let's throw him in there. I'm going to milk you for all your worth. Go for it, you know. <laughs> um, no, so O'Hara Davis, very underrated. Everyone should get excited about him. If you want to know why Ricky Burns is a three-time world champion at sparring guys like O'Hara Davis, because they show no mercy on him in sparring and that keeps him sharp. Off the radar guy people should be paying attention to, um, Craig Richards. Uh, super middleweight, looks the part, talks the part. Fantastic young fighter coming through. Wish Eddie was shining a bit more light on him. He deserves it. Um, he's probably gonna have a really big 2017, you know, probably still learning his trade this year. Big 2017 expected from him and super excited about him. And I think, you know, for boxing fans, these are the kind of people you should be getting excited about. You know, the Hara Davises, you know, when he's involved in a fight with Romeo Romeo, that'll be a big fight. It's a grudge match. You know, all of these things are happening in UK boxing, making it vibrant and exciting. And, you know, it's a good time to be watching British boxing. Right. We are introducing a new feature this week um, that will be coming up shortly. Uh, I want to ask you guys if anyone's got any suggestions to what we can call it, because frankly, I haven't thought of anything that sounds remotely enticing or catchy or is inspired by a feature on um, a radio show that I listen to sometimes. And it involves me bringing up a point that putting a point to this week it'd be Terry and generally it'll either be Martin or Martin and Terry and they've got to argue a ridiculous point uh, a point that is contrary to logic and try and make the point as well as possible um, and using their imagination and their off-the-cuff ingenuity so we'll come to that <laughs> Terry sank his head <laughs> well how's it gonna go um, but just to wrap up um, the real points I want to ask you about amateur boxing and just give me a lowdown as to what's happening in the amateur scene at the moment Um, I think for most coaches the focus right now is the Herringay Box Cup which will be in two weeks if you are London based grab a ticket for one of the days I'd suggest a Saturday or Sunday real boxing, real boxing people real boxing energy it's fantastic so I think I speak for all coaches and I say we're getting ready for that. You know, from my own individual perspective, would love to come home with a lot more goals. You know, I'd love for our club double jab to win team of the tournament. We came close last year, thought we were robbed. But a, a lot of hard work's going into that. Um, you know, we're seeing the squad come together now for the, the post-2016 GB setup. So good luck to guys like, you know, Jordan Reynolds, Good luck to all the lads who will have their GB assessments. Young Martin McDonough. And, you know, we've got you know, fantastic things are happening. And these are the guys, you know, five years from now, we'll be taking questions on. So young Martin McDonough, great story. You know, he was I mean, low on confidence, struggling to get results, you know, teamed up with a coach called Billy Rumble. And you've just watched the kid grow and develop just testing himself and you know god willing it all goes well for his gb assessment and he's one for the future hopefully you know so it's exciting times like i said two weeks from now if the weather's nice just head out to alexandra palace for the Harringay box cup come and meet you know some of us come and see what it's about and you know the unsung heroes of the sport you know the people who do this for, i mean from a sense of passion you know it's fantastic you've got youth men's women's you, know, you get to meet a fantastic group of people. I, I know 
I've made some good friends at that tournament. So a lot of fun in that sense, you know. So that's a little brief roundup, you know, not so much going on because there are people either getting ready for the Olympics or getting ready for GB trials. And if you know anyone who is, support them, wish them all the best. And hopefully let's see a few of you guys in two weeks. You know, like I always say, you know what I look like. <laughs> Down straight. Okay, it's time for your uncomfortability test. See how much you can that can make you squirm with <laughs> with this. What's the time limit though? Um, no, nothing greater than thirty seconds. Well, then I'm going to go thirty seconds then. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> right. Okay. Thirty seconds to tell me why. I mean, Tony. Recently, Tony Bowie's been calling out David Hay. He's been talking to David Hay and saying that you should drop the weight that he's accrued and come back down to cruiserweight. But I want you to tell me why Tony Bellew should go up to heavyweight division because he could totally clean up. Well, the amount go. of shit that comes out of Tony Bellew's mouth, um, if he just kept quiet, he'd probably be a heavyweight anyway, the amount of crap that he spouts. So he's probably a natural heavyweight, minus the bullshit, you know, but you wouldn't know the difference. If you ever look at his physique... Whether he's a light heavy or a heavyweight, he looks exactly the same. So he could actually be a heavyweight right now as we speak. Um, would he be a good one? Of course he would. Because in Tony's own words, I'm the best cruiserweight in the world. Therefore, I'm probably the best heavyweight in the world. Therefore, I'm probably the best featherweight in the world. You know, he, he's, he's one for grandiose statements. Especially 30 seconds. Um, God, I, I carry on though. <laughs> okay. No, well, I won't. I, I, I genuinely won't because. <laughs> Was that painful? It was because the guy's a tool. <laughs> the guy's an absolute tool. Like, you're going on the media calling out David. Hey, all he had to do after his fight is say, do you know what? I'm going to get knocked out for a fight, Ledbedev. Let me just fight someone British-based, make some good money. <laughs> That's clearly da what he's doing. Yeah, David, can I have a fight, please? I'm sure David would have said, if you make the numbers right, we can do it. But, you know, you're, you're trying to humiliate a man who did what you've just done but only better and you're trying to humiliate him I, that doesn't make any sense right, to me. i've got it on record now you've said that he's going to be a great heavyweight uh, yeah, <laughs> i'll take that yeah tony bell you, you know. well oh, you did well you did well but, but, did, did, no, but on a side note he did say he fancies fighting at heavyweight at some point See, if he didn't have noodles for arms, then maybe he would like... When I look at him, I just think, what? You just look like you've come out of a pub. Like, his arms look like bits of string hanging off his T-shirt. By comparison to a... You know, if he was a bit more, I don't know, looked like a boxer, then maybe he would, maybe he would be a heavyweight. But, but, I don't know. If he just had but, some more But that's what a clean muscle. boxer looks like, right? That's, <laughs> just think about that. That's what a clean boxer looks like. That's what a guy looks like if he doesn't take steroids. If he doesn't take growth hormone, they tend to look like that, like like a guy down the pub, because essentially that's what he is. You know, you've got these guys with the, you know, with the crazy physiques and, you know, there's ever so much, you know, what was it someone said? A whiff of the hot sauce about them. <laughs> that is a subject and a topic for another day because it's just a quagmire that gets us sued. So we will wrap it up there. Do you have anything more to add? No, um, usual. If you like it, share it, set the content free, keep asking questions, please. Because, Get in touch with us. Yeah. They've done pretty well, to be fair. You've, you've done all right with your homework, guys. You've, uh, you've come at us with some questions this week. Happy days. Yeah, just more questions. More. Gets, I mean, get stuck in. I mean, the, the Twitter discussions are fun. 
yeah, everyone has an opinion. Nothing I say is a fact. Nothing Martin or Andy says is a, just an opinion. Well, we're, <laughs> we're, all, we're, all, we're all fans of the sport. And, you know, what better way to do it than just to talk about it amongst ourselves. And remember, Hay versus Briggs. Man, we're going to do the, the sit down and all bar one at the O2. So we all need to get to know each other soon because, you know, like I always say, you know what I look like. <laughs> um, no, but by all means, share it. Um, New Age Boxing at fa- only on the Facebook page. Like it. New Age Boxing on Twitter. Follow it. Get involved. Maybe Try visit and the spread website. it as well. Try and get. I mean, we've we've yeah. had great word of mouth recently. You can see it. But the, the numbers are boosting. People are enjoying it. People are getting in touch and telling us that they like the podcast. So spread it and uh, and get people to tell you how terrible it is when they don't like it. But yeah, <laughs> you know, just 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 do all of that. You know, get get involved because. That's how things carry on. You know, once, once you're engaged and you're involved and then you start to tell us, actually, guys, do this or do that. I mean, then I mean, you're part of making something great. So get stuck in. At this share, point, Martin like, would tell us off for going on about it too much. So Yeah, but, but we've got to promote the thing. Yeah, I know. No, I agree. I totally agree, Terry. It's only Martin that's having a go. Uh, <laughs> right, okay. What I want to do is just leave you with the... It's, it's a short clip of um Ali as I promised at the beginning of the podcast. Um it's Ali with Michael Parkinson talking about um the the clip is sort of entitled Why is Jesus White? <laughs> as in depicted as white. And it's a fantastic uh, clip. Me and Terry were listening to it just before we came on air. And uh I'll smash it on the end of the podcast for you. It's uh it's just sort of typical of the man and his wit uh, describing big conversation pieces the way that he comes across just well you know him as well as i do um the legend himself muhammad ali goodbye from me and goodbye from me enjoy guys things are getting much better but i always wonder when i went to church on sundays i've always been one to i'm not just a boxer i do a lot of reading a lot of studying i ask questions i go i travel these countries i watch how their people live and i learn and i always ask my mother i said mother how come is everything white I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's Supper all white men? Angels are white. Pope and, and um, Mary and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? <laughs> she was I, said, I said, oh, I know. If the white folks was in heaven too, then the black angels were in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. <laughs> I said, listen, you quit saying that, boy. I was always curious, and I always wondered why I had to die to go to heaven. Why I couldn't have pretty cars and good money and nice homes now? Why do I have to wait till I die to get milk and honey? And I said, mama, I don't want no milk and honey. I like steaks and, and I said, milk and honey is a laxative anyway. Did they have a lot of bathrooms in heaven? So anyway, I was always curious. I always wondered why. You know, Tarzan is the king of the jungle in Africa. He was white. uh, White man. I saw this white man swinging around Africa with a diaper on, hollering. Oh! Do you all see Tarzan over here? Right. And all the Africans, so he's beating them up and breaking the lion's jaw. And here's Tarzan talking to the animals. And... The Africans been there for centuries, and he yet can't talk to the animals. Only Charles can talk to the animals. I always wonder why Miss America was always white. All the beautiful brown women in America, beautiful suntans, beautiful shapes, all tight complexions, but she always was white. And Miss World was always white. 
and Mr. Universe was always white. And then they got some stuff called White House cigars, white swan soap, king white soap, white cloud tissue paper, <clears throat> white rain hair rinse, white tornado flow wax. Everything was white. And the angel food cake was the white cake, and the devil food cake was the chocolate cake. <laughs> So, Mama, why is everything white? I always wondered, you know, and, and the president lived in the White House. <laughs> and Mary had a little lamb, his feet as white as snow, and snow white. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck, and the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. <laughs> so, Mama, why don't they call it white male? They lie, too. I was always curious, and then and this is when I knew something was wrong. <laughs> Won the Olympic gold medal in Rome, Italy. Olympic champion, the Russian standing right here, and the pole right here. Is Poland considered a communist country? Yeah. Yeah, I'm defeating America's so-called threats or enemies. And the flag is going ton 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 I'm standing so proud. Dun, 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 dun. And I don't hook the world for America. Dun, 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 dun. I took my gold medal, thought I'd invented something. I said, man, I know I'm going to get my people freedom there. I'm the champion of the whole world, Olympic champion. I know I can eat downtown now. And I went downtown that day, had my big old medal on and went in the restaurants. At that time, black things weren't integrated. The black folks couldn't eat downtown. And I went downtown, I sat down. And I said, you know, a cup of coffee, a uh, hot dog. He said, the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. <laughs> I'm so mad. I said, I don't eat them either. Just give me a cup of hot I said, I'm the Olympic gold medal. And three days ago, I fought for this country in Rome. I won the gold medal, and I'm going to eat. The manager heard him tell the manager, and she says, he said, well, I'm not the, I'm not the man. Now, he's got to go out. Anyway, I didn't raise no money. They put me out. And I had to leave that restaurant in my hometown where I went to church and served in their Christianity and fought and daddy fought in all the wars, just won the gold medal and couldn't eat downtown. I said, something's wrong. And from then on, I've been a Muslim. Yes, I was going to ask him about what attracted you to the to The, the Muslims, truth, but... the teachings of Elijah Muhammad on how black people's been brainwashed, how they've been taught to love white and hate black, how we've been robbed of our names and slavery, we were robbed of our culture, we were robbed of our true history, so it left us a walking dead man. So you got black people in all white country, and they don't know nothing about themselves, they don't speak their language, they're just mentally dead. And this is happening all over the world. But the first place that we'll rise will be the black people of America, and then the rest of them will. But it's going to, I, I was one who heard the truth. And when I heard the truth about my name was not Cassius Clay, like, like uh, I know a black man in America named John Hawkins. Now, you know who John Hawkins was. He was a slave trader from England. But the, in the white people at that time, if one had five slaves and his name was Jones, they would be called Jones property. If you was auctioned off to Mr. Smith, your name was Smith identifying you as property of certain masters. So now that I'm free, now that I'm no longer slave, then I want a name of my ancestors, mm. Muhammad Ali. Like a Chinese, how could a Chinese look named Robert Smith? <laughs> how, would, how would a German look named Edward Goldberg? <laughs> a Jewish name. So like, uh, 
When I heard that we don't have our names, we don't speak our true Arabic language, we were robbed of Islam, our true religion, and we've been made deaf, dumb, and blind in slavery, and Elijah Muhammad was taught by Allah, who we refer to as God, to teach us the truth that will free us. And when I heard it, I've been free ever since. I have no racial problems. I don't go where I'm not wanted. I'm, I mean, I'm proud, and, and Islam did it. So, And after these things that I heard in church, a preacher, and watching this and that, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't pinpoint it. But as soon as I heard the truth that Elijah Muhammad teaches us in America, it made me accept it.